Well, in this final session, we want to look at the rest of First uh, John, and we continue this study of men in the light, men walking in the light. And just by way of review, last night, last evening, we looked at First John one five, and and the assertion that John makes there. Uh, we entitled that sermon "The Source of Light," chapter one, verse five. This is the message. We have heard from Him and announced to you that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. Then before lunch, earlier this morning, we had a, another uh, session in First John, and we looked specifically at verses 6 to 10, and we looked at the implications of the light. We saw in those verses the five, uh, the five statements that... Uh, John gives us their affirmations and denials, if-then statements. And he gives them in, as, as part of his, his teaching in a, in a universal and absolute way, a way of discerning truth from error in, in understanding whether we understand who God is and whether we're living in light of who God is. We saw those three denials in the even verses and those two affirmations in the odd verses. But now what I want to do is look at really the rest of 1 John in the time that we have in the next hour or a little bit less as we wrap up our study, this brief study in 1 John and our topic of walking in the light. What John does now after this section, this opening chapter, is go on to give to the people to whom he was writing, the churches to whom he was writing, a series of tests to know whether they were reflecting the light. In fact, I would entitle this study this afternoon, The Reflection of the Light. So we've seen the source, we've seen the implications, and now we see the reflection of the light. And if I can use an analogy, it doesn't fit quite perfectly, but it is helpful. We know that light is, is, uh, is actually an array of colors that are in that beam of light. And to see those colors, you put it through a prism, and then the different colors are refracted from that. Visible light, also known as white light, is it, 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 consists, it consists of a collection of component colors. And, and these colors are, are the colors of the rainbow, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, violet. Those are the standard colors of light. And we can look at the Christian life in that way as well, that that we as believers, if, if we understand God as light, if we are in Him, and if we have come to know Him, that our ability to reflect the light has been restored, and we will shine forth, and we will radiate, not out of our own, our own inherent light, but we will reflect the light of God. And what John does in this letter is give the readers Different ways to know that they are reflecting the light. In a sense, we could say different colors of the light that work together to give us the beam of light that's reflected. So I want to look at these component colors. And as I've read through 1 John, I think I can summarize it more or less in eight different colors or components of what it means to reflect the light. So if we could uh, if we could depict the life of pursuing holiness in colors, there would be eight of them, at least in terms of how I've broken 
up the letter. And I want to go through each one of these. So we're going to do more of a survey and pull out these eight tests, these eight component colors, and do some heart searching and consider whether these these colors are being reflected from us. So eight of them, and each of them I'm going to give you a, a statement, but also a key word to help us remember what John emphasizes here. Here's the first of the eight reflections or eight colors of reflecting the light. To reflect the light means that you keep his commandments. To reflect the light means you keep his commandments. And the key word here, the color, you could say is this, it's obedience. Put that word down, obedience. And this we find particularly in chapter 2, verses 3 to 6. This color comes through with this particular test. And, and this is the key statement, verse 3. By this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. And then he goes on with some extra information to help us think through this this reality says the one who says I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has been truly perfected. And by this we know we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. To reflect the light means that you keep his commandment. And as you look at that key verse in verse 3, the summary of which is the word obedience, notice what he says. He says, by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Now notice the word order here. This is very important. And, and I want to emphasize this at the very beginning. We've, we've already talked about it numerous times in brief, or maybe even I've drawn a little bit more attention to this, but we have to keep our understanding in the right order. And John says this, by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Notice what is the cause and the effect. What is the cause and the consequence? We dare not Mix these up. John says, by this, by keeping the commandments, we know that we have come to know Him. And so, obedience must be properly described or defined as the consequence of having come to know God and not the cause of it. Obedience is the consequence of having come to know God, and not the cause of it. Now, every other religion in the world will reverse that. And you'll hear that often. That you have to do certain things, and by that you will inherit eternal life. You, you have to do certain things, and you will make yourself worthy. And, and so if you ask the typical unbeliever, why should God let you into heaven if you were to die right now? And he would say, well, I would say I'm a, I'm a pretty good person. I haven't committed murder. I haven't assassinated the president. I, you know, I, you know, I, I don't go around with machetes hacking people up. I'm a good person. And so much of, of the thinking of mankind, it's inherent within the flesh, is to think 
that it's my striving and, and my obedience that will lead me to salvation. But John makes it clear. He, re, he, he reverses that order and says, no, obedience is a consequence, not a cause. It's the consequence of having come to know God. And that's why he says, you know what, if you want to know that you're in the one who is light, what's the result of your life? What's the result of your life? And he says, by this we have come to know him if we keep his commandments, plural. Now the commandments there, the plural noun, is intended again to emphasize particularity. That's often what we do with nouns. If we want to emphasize more of the abstract idea, we'll keep the noun in the singular. But if we want to emphasize particulars, concrete particulars, we put it in the plural. And that's what John does here to emphasize that obedience is not just something that is ambiguous or abstract. It it has to do with specific things, specific commands. And this certainly is very consistent with what Jesus said himself. John 14, 15, right? If you love me, you will keep my commandments, plural. The Puritan writer Thomas Watson said this, some will obey partially, they will obey some commandments, not others. Like a plow which when comes to a still piece of earth makes a bulk. But God, that spoke all the words of moral law, will have all obeyed. This reminds me of when I used to be on the farm. I grew up as a farm boy, loved the farm, and was very familiar with our 2,000 acres and all the different parts of the 2,000 acres because that's, that, that's what I lived and breathed, farming, as a young boy. And we had this area, this one field in particular, that had these patches on it that if it was wet, it was like quicksand. If it was dry, it was like concrete. And so when you were tilling the soil... You had to be so very careful with the the cultivator because as you got close to those patches, if it was dry and you hit them, the, the cultivator would bulk. It would lurch and you could easily break it. It would hit these pieces and the cultivator would spring up out of the ground. It would not penetrate. And Watson uses that analogy that, that it's, it's easy for us to live that kind of life where there are certain commandments where the cultivator just nicely slides through the dirt. But then it hits certain commands, certain stones, and it jumps out. And that's the end of it. And we must examine our lives and say, okay, if the light is is reflecting from me one of the colors that will be evident as it appears in, in reality will be this obedience. And this obedience is not a partial obedience. It's it's not a periodic obedience. It's not a superficial obedience. It is a consistent obedience. And it is an obedience that will will, uh, extend to everything that our Lord and Savior has commanded. And so here's the heart check with this one, men. This is the heart check. I assume all of you here would, would claim to be believers... And I would go along with that. But I know that it's very easy to have certain commandments that you just don't want to follow. 
certain areas of life where you know the Lord is not sovereign in your thinking or in your practice over that area. But our Lord, if He is Lord, must have dominion over it all. And so the heart check is, are there any commandments that you are hesitant to keep? Look at your life. You know it. And often these areas are in very the, the very private recesses of the heart. What does the Lord command of you that is still a matter of bulking? That still causes the cultivator to lurch out of the ground? If that, those exist, your prayer this afternoon and moving forward must be, Lord, the cultivator of your commandments must move straight through this area of my life. Make it so. I want to obey. As one writer said, true obedience does not have lead in its heels. It must move through all. So number one, to reflect the light means you keep His commandments. Keyword, obedience. Unqualified obedience. Unremittent obedience. Consistent obedience, but it's obedience. Number two, the second color of the light it's this, to reflect the light means that you love your brother. To reflect the light means that you love your brother. The key word here is the word affection. And I'm talking about here affection on the horizontal level. Affection for one another. Not just, oh, I love my brothers, you know, vaguely, uh, but then I really don't like them. Uh, you know, that's, uh, you know, I think it even comes from Dostoevsky, something in his book, uh, Brothers Karamazov, where, where uh, a statement by one of the characters there is, I love humanity, it's just people I don't, I don't like. And we can say that about the church, right? I love the church, I just don't like its people, or I, I just, I don't like some of them. And the, the Apostle John says, no, you will love your brothers if you're reflecting the light. In fact, this is so important for John that this particular color of the light is the most repeated in the letter. And we're going to look at several of these texts as we move forward. And it only makes sense. Thomas Watson said this, Love is the queen of the graces. It outshines all the others as the sun does the lesser planets. And that's true of 1 John. Over and over and over again, he emphasizes this. And I want to direct your attention. We're not going to read all the texts. But I'll direct your attention to these paragraphs throughout the letter that deal with it. First of all, it comes right there, beginning in verse 7. It's a section from verse 7 to verse 11. I will read this. He says, Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old one which you have heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light, and here's the key verse, the one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. 
Notice the absolute language there again. John has no patience for those who, who are, who are inconsistent. No patience for those who are just playing around. He states it very directly. Black and white, light and darkness. Listen, if you say you're in the light, but you hate your brother, you're self-deceived. He goes on in another section to say something similar. Look at uh, chapter 3, beginning in verse 11 and going all the way to verse 22. Here's another section where he, he focuses on love, or what we would say affection for one another at this horizontal level. Let me read a few verses here. For this is the message, verse 11, for this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Verse 14, we know we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Verse 16, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Verse 18, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. Verse 19, we will know that we are of the truth and we will assure our heart before him. Over and over again in that section, he emphasizes love for the brethren that even goes to the extent of the sacrifice of one's life. There's another paragraph, another entire section dealing with this. It begins in chapter 4, verse 7, and goes to verse 14. So another section where this particular color of the light is, is, is described. Chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. He goes on to say this, verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. In other words, no one has seen God, but God is light, and when we reflect the light... God is manifest. Goes on to, to say this. We have come to know and, and, and in verse 16, we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love and the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in Him. Over and over there's a, a reference to that, that love that is, is, is to be essential to our existence. There is one more section there. It's really verse 17 to 21 of chapter 4. Verse 17, I started there. Verse 17 to 21 of that chapter is another section, another paragraph on the the love of God or the love we are to have for one another. And this too reflects what Jesus clearly taught. John 13, 15, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is how Christianity manifests itself. This is how you can tell. This is how you can judge. This is how you can discern if a person, if a man, is a disciple of Christ in that he will love others. 
Because here's the reality. The one who sincerely loves the one who begets will love those whom he begets. Let me say that again. The one who truly loves the one who begets, which is God, will love those whom he begets, which is the church. That's the reality. You cannot have it such that you love God and yet you hate those whom God saves. You, you cannot have it that you, you love God, but you, you dislike those whom Christ came to purchase for Himself. This speaks very directly here of our attitude toward the people of God in the church, our love for the church, being together with one another. And with our local church, and even beyond that, with other local churches, members of other local churches where the gospel is preached, that should be the joy of our life. It should mark us as having a special affection and affinity to be together. It should be the joy of our life. And it, it means that you know we look on the Lord's Day gatherings, that one time a week on the Lord's Day to commemorate the atoning sacrifice of Christ and its perfection in that He was raised from the dead on Sunday. We gather on that day in, in remembrance of that, in adoration of that. But that's, that is the primary reason why we gather, but not the only reason we gather. We gather together because we long to be with God's people. We gather together because of this affection we have for one another. Again, Thomas Watson said this, The saints are walking pictures of God. If God be our Father, we shall love to see His picture of holiness in believers. We shall pity them for their infirmities, but love them for their graces. It may justly be suspected that God is not father of those who love not His children. Though they retain the community of the saints in their creed, they banish the community of saints out of their company. He's making a reference there to the Apostles' Creed. And in the Apostles' Creed, in that last section of the Apostles' Creed, it states this, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, not referring to Roman Catholic, the Universal Church, the word Catholic there is referring to the Universal Church, all those of the redeemed, the communion of the saints, I believe in the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. And, and here's the, what, what, what Watson is referring to is that it's easy to keep that in the creed. I believe in the universal church. There is such a thing as a universal church, and I believe in the communion of the saints. But banish the saints out of our actual company. This is, this is important for us men to, to grasp, and it's, it, it has to move just merely from profession, as Watson requires, to actual action, to works of love, as Paul calls it in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 3. This cannot be a barren love. And so here's the heart check. Let me ask you this as we wrap up this particular color of the light. 
How is your love for God's people? How is your love for the church? Is Sunday morning, Lord's Day services, is, is that a prior, priority for you because you love the one who begets and those whom he has begotten? And if there is in your heart this attitude of, I would much sooner you know, be at home and just watch it on TV, you've got some heart searching to do, some confession, some repentance to do, to turn from that and to, to realize that it is no reflection of light to have ambivalence or indifference to the people of God. Walking in the light will mean you will love the church. You will love individuals in the church. And that love is not just some abstract idea. It is affection that makes itself known in specific works of love. Sacrifices of time. Sacrifices of of emotional energy. Sacrifices of your own material possessions to help those who are part of the body of Christ. It's one of those things where it's it's, uh, uh, with with our... uh, men's leadership group, what I will sometimes say to them is, listen, one of the problems with discipleship is not that we don't have time. One of the problems of discipleship is it's draining. It takes effort. Who wants to meet with somebody who is on the verge of a divorce? Who wants to go through that? To to hear of all the stories and, and to think through, my oh my, this is... This is the product of years of habitual living of a a man and his bad lifestyle in the home. And he's on the verge of divorce. He wants to come to me and and, and pour this all out on me and and say, what do I do? And and we don't don't want to give up the the emotions. We we don't want to give up the time. We don't want to to carry that burden. So for, for many of us, it's just easier not to get involved. I'll I'll be there on Sunday morning, I'll go to the Bible study, but don't bother me with your problems. That's not affection. Affection that John is talking about is the kind of affection that says, I'm willing to take this burden on, and brother, I'm going to walk with you, I'm going to carry your burden. Now, you have to obey the Lord's commands, you have to get right with the Lord with respect to your marriage, and I'll point you in that direction, I'll admonish you, I'll kick you in the pants, I'll come over and, and shake you if I have to. But I'm here, I'm going to commit to you, and I'm going to bear your burden. That's love. That's love. Number three, to reflect the light means that you hate the world. Key word here is separation. To reflect the light means you hate the world. Go back to chapter 2, and there's this section in verses 15 to 17 that is, that is central to this. We'll just look at this particular paragraph. Chapter 2, 15 to 17. To reflect the light means you hate the world. John writes, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. The key verse there is verse 15, do not love the world nor the things in the world. And he goes on to say that the reason for this is that these things are are both 
things of moral impurity, but also of triviality. Remember, when you talk about holiness, we talk about God being transcendent above creation. Even without any respect to morality, God is just eternal and He's transcendent for that reason. That the things that have been created had, had a beginning and they'll have an end. And, and therefore, by virtue of that, they are inferior. They're not perfect compared to, to God. And then also, as a corollary to that, God is infinitely separated from moral pollution. And, and John brings in both of these ideas and says, this is why you are not to love the world. Number one, of, of the moral pollution part of it. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. So don't love the world because of its moral impurity. If you love the world, you are trying to erase the distinction between God and moral impurity. Do not love the world. You cannot do that unless you combine them together and God will have none of it. But also he's saying, don't love the world. Why? Because it's passing away. It's temporal. It has limited existence. And even that fact alone should should cause us to evaluate, reevaluate our priorities and, and wonder, am I loving something that's just going to be gone tomorrow and there'll be nothing there in its place? Samuel Rutherford put it this way, when the race is ended and the play is either won or lost and you are in the inmost circle and border of time and shall put your foot within the march of eternity... All the good things of your short night dream shall seem to you like ashes of a blaze or thorns and straw. All the good things of your short night dream. Peter talks about that. Life is but a vapor. He equates it to the kind of grass that was there in the Middle East and in California, not so much here, but in California, that it can uh, it can can start green in the morning. The flower comes up. It's benefited from the coolness of the night. It blossoms, but by midday or the end of the day, it's all burned up in the summer heat. And and Peter says that's life, it's just reality. So what are you loving? John says, do not love these things. So here's the heart check that flows out of this, number three. The heart check of, of do not love the world, keyword being separation. Is there a demonstrable separation in your affection between God and His things and the things of this world? Ask yourself the question. When you look at all the affections in your life, is it demonstrable that there is true affection for God and His people, the things that last, the things that are pure, and whatever it is that you have to do that's part of our life here in this temporal world. Can people tell the difference? Can you tell the difference? Can your wife tell the difference? Can your children notice the difference? That when it comes to the day when you will pass away and they stand up to eulogize you, they won't have any problem. They won't have to lie to say, my dad was a good man. I could always tell. He loved the Lord and the things of the Lord beyond what anything else in, in this life. 
Or would they say, no, my God, my, my dad's God is his job or his boat or his favorite car collection or his motorcycle or, or what have you. The lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, boastful pride of life, those things take so many men down and so many men come to the end of their lives and then realize when it's already too late that they've wasted, they've squandered an entire life that had so many opportunities only to come to the end of it with nothing, having, lo- having have spent all their affection on things that just pass away. What is it for you that still holds that kind of affection that is due to God alone and the things of God alone? Is it entertainment? Is it possessions? Is it careers? Is it pleasure? Some kind of pleasure? In my own case, when, as I said, I, I was... Uh, I was raised on a farm and, and had great affection for the farm. And uh, I, I lo- my dad's a wonderful believer, and, and that's his job. And, and so as a young man growing up, I loved to be with my dad, and I loved to farm. And, of course, with farms, it's a generational thing, right? You want to pass it on to your children. Uh, but thankfully, my, you know, my dad would much sooner have me in ministry than on the farm. Uh, but I remember having been saved at the age of 15 going through that, that struggle, and thankfully, it was my own dad who put into my hands the book by, by John MacArthur called The Gospel According to Jesus, a book about the lordship of, of Christ, that if you profess him as Lord, that's not just an empty statement that has teeth. And so I had to work through that, and thankfully, my dad, having given me that book, it was the, by the way, it was the first real book that I read. I had gone through school, you know, I was 15 already, gone through school. I don't think I finished any book. I hated school. That was the first book, other than the Bible, that I was that I actually read, and and that book taught me about the lordship of Christ. And I remember struggling through this, and, and this isn't just you know for everyone in terms of having to make the decision to go into ministry, but it has everything to do for all of you as it deals with affections. And I had to realize I I loved the farm too much, even as a young boy, and I knew that if I was to stay there, it would become my god. And I remember wrestling with it for several months and realizing, no, I profess Jesus as Lord. That means he has my affection. And if his will is for me to go into ministry, I must give up the farm and do so with delight. And it was not until I got to that point where I finally drove away from the farm. My wife and I had just been married and we came out here to go to to Los Angeles to go to seminary. And I remember thinking to myself, this is goodbye but it's amazing. Just a couple of years earlier, I would not have been happy. But the Lord has given me a superior affection. And that's what we must pray for. And so the heart check here, men, is what is the love of your life? And maybe it's not even something that's inherently sinful. But you're struggling with it. And so the prayer that you must pray is, Lord, give me a superior affection. An affection that will eclipse my affection for whatever else it is. Number four, to reflect the light means you internalize the truth. The the key word here is meditation, meditation. To reflect the light means you internalize truth. This is an interesting uh, section within John's letter. It really begins... Uh, In this one paragraph, it begins in chapter 2, verse 18, and goes all the way to verse 27. 
So this fourth one is to reflect the light means you internalize the truth. It's found in 2 verse 18 to 27, keyword meditation. And let me read this section. It's, it has some interesting terminology here, and I'll just bring out a few points on it. Paul says this, children, or John says this, children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were really not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are all not of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. He is a liar, but the who is a liar, but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, now here's the key verse in this section, verse 24. Let that abide in you which you have heard from the beginning. Let that abide. And that which was heard from the beginning, if you go all the way back to chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, it's the apostolic testimony, the apostolic witness. And John uses a a verb here, the verb to remain. Meno is the Greek verb that is translated as abide. What does it mean? It's actually a very profound term. On the one hand, the verb itself is, is very mundane, to remain, to stay in a place. But it's used in this context in a very profound way, to abide. And notice the emphasis he makes here. He says it twice in verse 24. He's going to say it again right at the end in verse 27. But notice 24. As for you, let that abide in you, which you heard from the beginning. If that which you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And then again in verse 27, as for you, the anointing which you receive from Him abides in you. So with this particular emphasis, John is talking about what needs to abide in us. That verb for abide means to remain. Not just remain in the sense of just, it, it's present there, but remain in the sense in that it is central. It is, it is, it, it provides this vitality. It makes its presence known. And he's referring here to the truth, to the Word of God, to doctrine. So this point in particular is, is, is emphasizing the importance of doctrine. And that's why I said the key word here is meditation. To abide in, um, it means to remain in. And so if the truth is to remain in us, it means that, as, as John says, let it abide in you. That means it has to be taken in and, and its presence known there. Not fleeting in one moment, out the next. Just like the man in James, right? You, the, the man who hears the word but then walks away. And then there's the other man. And the other man is the one described as it's the one within whom the word abides and he becomes a doer of the word. But that word remains in him. And that does not come merely through the auditory sense that, well, I'm going to be at church on Sunday and I'm going to listen to a sermon or so. No, what it is, is 
this idea of meditation. For the word to remain in us, let the word remain, let the word abide, means it requires this active participation, active intake, active contemplation, active rumination for this word to abide in us. This prioritizes doctrine. Speaking of the prioritization of doctrine, John Owen said this, the foundation of true holiness, talking about that here, and true Christian worship is the doctrine that comes from the gospel. It comes from what we are to believe. So when Christian doctrine is neglected, forsaken, or corrupted, true holiness and worship will also be neglected, forsaken, and corrupted. It's exactly what John is talking about here. Exactly. Remember, he said, many antichrists have come into the world. They've corrupted the truth. Or when truth is neglected, it will not result in holiness. When it's forsaken, it will be like those who went out from among us. No, if if there is to be the full light of God's holiness, there must be this color called meditation. This aspect of our lives that prioritizes study, that prioritizes learning and understanding, that prioritizes uh, education in the in the in the doctrinal sense. So here comes the the heart check on this fourth color. What are you doing to let that word abide in you, which you have heard from the beginning, from the moment of your salvation? Think, think over your life. What are you doing to let that word abide in you? Think deeply on that term, abide. What are you doing? Are you prioritizing the growth of your understanding of the character of God? Your comprehension of that which comes from the Word of God? You're prioritizing the opportunities that you have to study doctrine, to to study the Bible, to know the truth. And and not just merely because you want to go do something or teach somebody with it, but no, as a first order priority, you want to know God. And that's where it all begins. And so you, you want that word to abide in you. Now listen, men, as part of this, the issue is if this is a priority for you, it's going to show up in your daily schedule. It's going to show up in your weekly schedule. It's going to show up in your monthly schedule. So if you would pull out today your your planner, your your, your phone that has all, everything on there that you do with your, your life, would somebody be able to look at that and say, oh, I see, Bible study, listen to this sermon, uh, you know, this evening, uh, you know, devoted to, to study, watching these videos, uh, these the, the, these doctrinal videos, reading this book, they, they would see that in your life. Or if they pulled out your daily planner, your monthly planner, they'd look at that and they'd wonder, you know, is this guy even literate? Uh, what 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 would they see? And so this is what I'll, I'll press often to our men too, especially those struggling with holiness. I'll say, okay, what in your day shows that you're devoted to the truth? You're devoted to to, to reading scripture and. And studying. What books are you reading? Where are you reading in the Bible right now? What's your plan? And those guys who will, it, it's without a doubt, those guys who say, well, I don't have one, I'll say, well, yeah. That's why you're struggling. That's why you're coming to me. I understand. Because I would be this, in the same place if I did, if I followed your pattern of life, I'd be right there too, brother. 
It's, it's, it just, it's common sense. So, so what are you going to do to prioritize the study of doctrine? To actually read books, read sermons, listen to sermons. So when you get in the, the car for your commute, that you don't just turn on the news, which especially these days is so unsanctifying. But you, you, you say, I don't need to know what's going on over there. Instead, I want to know God. So you turn on grace to you. Or you turn on something from R.C. Sproul or Alistair Begg or your pastor, first and foremost. And you re-listen to that sermon that he preached on Sunday and said, I didn't understand everything in there. I know that's my fault, so I'm going to listen to it again. That's meditation, ruminating on the truth so that it abides in you. Number five, to reflect the light means, I'm going to use the same term now, because that's what John does, to reflect the light means you abide in Christ. Now notice the previous one was what you did so that the Word would abide in you. But John also says we must abide in Christ. Alright? And we see this in two places in particular in John's letter. We see it first of all in chapter 2 verse 28 to 3 verse 3. There's a, a, a paragraph there. You can write that down. Chapter 2 verse 28 to 3 verse 3. And then again, he's going to talk about this in chapter 4 verse 15 all the way to verse 18. 4 verse 15 to 18. Here's the key word with that one. Dependency. Now, when something must abide in us, that was meditation, right? Intake. But for us to abide in something else, or in this case, someone else, what is emphasized here is dependency. That's the key word. Dependency. Abiding in Christ. Look at chapter 2, verse 28 to 3, verse 3. He says, Now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from Him in shame at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone who also practices righteousness is born of Him. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that He would that, that we would be called the children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as he is pure. Verse 28 of chapter 2 and verse 3 of chapter 3 are really key here because John begins the paragraph by giving the command, abide in him. And then in verse 3 of chapter 3, he talks about the same idea but with different language. Hope fixed on him. And as a result, what happens? We're purified. So what does it mean to abide in Christ? It means to remain in Christ. Same idea, meno is the verb, to remain in Christ. And I know the answer to that is, what does that really mean? And listen, this is the the great task that you must put before you, is to say, you know what, in my life, my greatest ambition 
is to understand what it means to abide in Christ. Nothing else matters. But I want to know this so that one day I can explain it. John 15, the Gospel of John 15, verse 1 to 5, gives us some help in understanding what it means to abide in Christ. This is how Jesus described it in John 15, and that's a very powerful chapter on abiding. You can look there later on. But this is how Jesus described abiding. He said this, as the true vine... Oh, excuse me. Nope, I didn't write that one down. John 15, I'll read it from the text here. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, He prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. As you all, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Here's the concept of abiding, and I've already said this is the key word. It's complete dependency. It's recognizing that our strength to do whatever it is that we do for the glory of God, whatever it is that is in the light, as we walk in the light, whatever it is, it's, it's a direct dependency on Him. And that is an attitude to cultivate. That does not come easy. So it means as you go throughout the day, your decisions that you make, what is it that will glorify God here most? You might search the Scriptures. Scriptures don't, don't say very much about it. Give some general principles. And, and so in this, you're, you want to abide in Christ and that you want to be dependent on Him. And so you bathe it in prayer. You search the Scriptures. You get counsel from other godly men. And when you make the decision, there's this, there's this consciousness. Lord, I am dependent on You. I'm going to move forward and trust that this is the right decision that I need to make. Making decisions in your relationships and in how you live your life in relation to your family, your wife, your children, co-workers, other people. There's a dependency upon Christ. When you come across hard times, you know, your prayers are filled with this kind of language. Lord, help me. Lord, help me. I need you. That's the language of abiding. It's the language that says, apart from you, I can do nothing. I can't make this relationship work. I can't solve this problem. I can't make this decision Lord, I, I, I'm dependent upon You. Help me. By Your providence or by Your revelation in Your Word, help me, help me, help me. We must cultivate this kind of life. And so here's the heart check that comes with this. What, is, what are you doing to cultivate direct dependency upon Christ for your daily living? For decision making, for the fulfillment of your duties and responsibilities, for your relationships, for your ministry, for your, your, your evangelism, for paying the bills, for disciplining your children. What are you doing consciously to cultivate that demonstration of dependency? And for us as men, that's a hard thing, right? Because for us as men, we want to be independent. It's, it's, it's within us to, to lead. 
it's within us to be the man of the home, to to be that one who, who, who will hold the course, steady the course, regardless of the cost. And that easily leads into a wrong understanding of the Christian life when we think of ourselves as, well, I've got the Word of God here, now I just need to apply it, and that's that. And that is not what John is teaching here. John is, is teaching us that as one of the colors of holiness, there is this direct dependency that must increase as we grow in Christ. So that as we look at what we do today compared to what we do a couple of years ago, we can easily say, yeah, I made make decisions today very different than I did back then. I handle relationships so much different than I did back then. I look on what I produce. I look on my activity. I look on my productivity so much different than I did a couple of years ago. A couple of years ago, I thought I was responsible for it. A couple of years ago, I would just make decisions. I'd never pray. A couple of years ago, I would just do these things, and that was that. But today, you know what? Oh, do I spend time in prayer before I make a decision? Today, you know, when anybody wants to to, to applaud me for something, I'm quick to say, listen, brother, this is just Christ working in me. I couldn't do this. You cultivating that kind of lifestyle. Examine yourself in that. Number six. To reflect the light means you stop practicing sin. And this is found in chapter 3, verses 4 to 10. 1 John 3, 4 to 10. To reflect the light means you stop practicing sin. Here the key word is mortification. Mortification. Let me read this section. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sin, excuse me, sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who, who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. The one practicing sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, and the one who does not love his brother. Now, we have to interpret that text in light of the antecedent context. And we won't go there, but you remember from before lunch, from earlier this morning, we looked at the, the series of affirmations and denials. And, and John denies that we can, that we can deny either, uh, complete sinfulness or even present sinfulness. That we can't deny those things. So what does John mean here when he talks about doing sin? He's talking about practicing it. He's talking about this, this lifestyle that, 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 that is arranged around it and that is orchestrated in order to promote it and preserve it. John is saying that anyone who arranges their life around the production of sin, around the, the, the achieving of sin, anyone who arranges his life around it, anyone who arranges his life in such a way as to protect that sin, to promote that sin, to foster that sin, anyone who does that is not of God. He's very clear on that. And so this is an important test. You might interact with other men who, who say, look, you know, my, my problem is, is sex. And, and, and uh, you say, okay, what, what do you mean by that? And, 
And, and then you say, okay, you've described a very licentious lifestyle, but it seems to me that you're making all kinds of, of compromises aside from that in order to protect that lust of the flesh. So listen, brother, you have no fruit here of true regeneration. Your whole life is about self-gratification. Your whole life is about doing things so that you have that, that pleasure. And until you're willing to repent of that and turn to Christ, I can't help you. But there are others who will struggle with sin, but it's not because they practice it. It's not because they organize their life in order to promote it, protect it. Rather, they, they genuinely struggle with sin. And that's who John was talking about back in chapter 1. And he uses that here to emphasize the need for mortification. Anyone who is reflecting God's holiness will shine this color that we call mortification. He'll be involved in, in killing these sin habits. They will, they will not be protected. They will not be given amnesty in one's life. So here's the heart check for that one. Let's look at our habits. What are habits? How do we define habits? A habit is something that you do that's like muscle reflex, or muscle memory, I should say. A habit is muscle memory in the, in the bigger picture. So probably if I asked you, how did you brush your teeth this morning? A lot of you would probably say, I don't even remember that. Uh, how did you comb your hair? Uh, and some of us don't have it. So I can't ask you that question. But some, some still have a little bit of it. Uh, it, but probably you don't remember. It's muscle memory. Habit is muscle memory in, in life. Uh, and, and so the issue is, do you have sinful habits? And listen, if there's this sinful habit, it's just like muscle memory. You just do these things and you don't even think about it. I would have to say, listen, you know what? I would tend to say you're not in Christ. Based on what John says here, you're practicing sin. It's muscle memory. You don't even think about it. You don't even have a moment of questioning. You have no time in which you're saying, okay, do I do this or do I don't? What, is the, what does God want me to do here? It's just, uh, it's, it's right there, so I'm going to do it. That's memory of the flesh. And that is a work of the devil. And again, your greatest need is, is, is to turn to Christ for that propitiation of sins. But there are those, there are the rest of us, I could say, that we would say, and it's not muscle memory per se, because I know that at the moment of temptation, there's a struggle. A lot of the times I win, I don't always. And then there's the tremendous guilt that comes from it. And, and then there's the hatred and, of, of that sin. And I, oh, I hate it and I long for heaven and I, I want that final moment of victory when it'll all be put behind me and it causes tears and, and mourning and, and more striving. That's what John is after here. No one who abides in Christ, no one who abides in Him is going to practice sin. Instead, you're going to practice mortification. You're going to have the determination to rooted out. And the Puritans would talk about these two things that are so important to life. One of them is mortification, but it's never just mortification for the sake of mortification. One is mortification, the other one is vivification. Put to death, put to life. Both of those go hand in hand. They cannot happen without one or the other. And so you have to look at this and say, okay, my life has to be the putting off of certain things and immediately in its place, the putting to life of the virtue, the corresponding virtue. 
So if it's anger, let's do a heart check here. If it's anger, that outburst of anger that men so commonly struggle with, then we would say, okay, you've got you to mortify that because the one who's abiding in Christ does not practice sin, does not protect this sin. So what do you do with anger? It means, first of all, that you attack it by all of God's graces. A full assault. Figure out what to do. Get radical. If your hand causes you to sin, what does Jesus say? Cut it off. If you know that that's a sin, especially one that wants to be habitual in your life, hey, if you're really serious, you'll say, I'm going to deal with this. And so um, you get, you go about full assault on it. Do what it takes. But not just that. You, to, to help in the process as you distance yourself, as you uproot it, as you uproot that sin from your life, you have to have something else growing there, or it'll just come back very easy. And so, what's the opposite of anger? Selflessness, sacrifice, the the giving of your life for others. So, in the place where you would get angry because your wife spoke to you in a way that was disrespectful, instead you turn around and in a humble way you ask, how can I serve you? Or the driver on the freeway or co-worker who does stupid things, you find the opposite reflex and you cultivate that as the muscle memory. Number seven, to reflect the light means you employ discernment. To reflect the light means you employ discernment. It begins in chapter 4, verse 1, and goes to verse 6. Keyword here is discernment. Let me read this. Beloved, do not believe every spirit that tests the spirit to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know that the Spirit of God, by this you know the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that is coming, and now it is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome the world, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Keyword here, the color of this particular beam is, is discernment. We, there is no place for gullible Christians in the pursuit of holiness. And sadly, that is sometimes the case. There's all kinds of literature out there and uh, written by Christians about the Christian life. Um, and some of it is just garbage. But you'll have these guys who think, well, it's just about holiness, so it's got to be right. And they'll be, be reading stuff by Joel Osteen and, and this mystic over here and that guy over there, that health wealth guy, and all kinds of stuff. And, and, and you just go, okay, this guy isn't serious about holiness. Holiness requires discernment. You will not grow in holiness if you're not discerning. No place for gullibility here. And we as men who are growing and walking in the light need to exercise this discernment. J.C. Ryle said this, we should no more tolerate false doctrine than we should tolerate sin. Some of us have an easier way of identifying sin and saying that's wrong, but when it comes to false doctrine, we want to be nice. We, we, we want to be 
ecumenical and just all joined together. Why divide over this issue? But John is saying, listen, the world is the, the, the world listens to Satan. We don't. So let it show. So let's do a heart check here. What are you doing to cultivate that spiritual skill of discernment? That when you hear something on the radio or someone says something to you in the street or even in the pew, that, that immediately you, you have this system, not because you just want to tell everybody what you know and everybody else is wrong, okay? There's that pride. And, and there are those discernment bloggers who, who just want to just tell everybody that they're, that they're lost and, and only they know the truth. That's not what we're talking about here, but there is something in which we always say, whenever there's talk about God and His ways, that because He's so holy, He does not tolerate the attempt to erase the distinctions. Neither can I. And so I'm going to approach the doctrine of God and theology in general and the teaching of the Word of God in the Christian life, I'm going to approach it with discernment. And I'm not going to agree to that which is contrary to Scripture. I'm not going to support that, which is contrary to Scripture. No matter how gentle and kind the people are, I'm not just going to fear man and just want to be buddy-buddies that when there's somebody who I know is going in a wrong direction and believing something that he ought not to believe, it's contrary to the apostolic witness, that I'm going to say something. I'm going to say something. I'm going to pray about it. I'm going to find the most gracious, humble way to say it, but I am going to speak up. That's what... Living in holiness means. To reflect the light means you employ discernment. Finally, number eight, to reflect the light means that you believe Jesus is the Christ. The key word here is the word faith. And the key verses, chapter 5, verses 5 to 12. Chapter 5, verses 5 to 12, key word faith, to reflect the light to walk in the light means you believe Jesus is the Christ. And this is a great one to end with. This is kind of how John ends his letter, although he's got a few things to say after this. But I want to read these verses. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with water only, but with the water and with the blood It is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three are in agreement. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that He has testified concerning His Son. And the one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. And he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. This is where we'll end it today. This is that last color that's part of the that's part of the the prism you could say the light that is what we call holiness and it is belief that Jesus is the Christ the son of god it means that he is our ultimate love he is our lord he is our savior he is our greatest ambition in life. He is our delight. 
He is the greatest thing upon which our minds can dwell. He is the one for which we will willingly, joyfully sacrifice everything. The key word there is faith. And as the reformers would define faith, remember three components. First of all, there is mental assent as part of faith, right? When we believe the facts. Mental assent. But there's another component that also is, is personal in nature when we believe that these facts apply to me. Jesus Christ came not only to die on the cross, but He came to die on the cross for me. That's the second component where it now becomes more personal. It now starts to affect the, the, the will. And it, it, it has that realization that these are not just sterile facts, but these are personal. That He came for me. And, and then you get to the final aspect of that that reality of, of faith where it says, and, and there's nothing else that will help my soul. He's the only solution that I believe heart, soul, and, and mind in this, that this is the truth. And this is the kind of faith that John has in mind here when he calls upon the members of the church and the churches to realize that to reflect the light is to have faith that Jesus is the Christ, to make Him the all in all the, the greatest of life's ambitions, that is what we as men must do. So the heart check here is, men, do you love Christ? Do you believe Him and His promises? Obedience, affection, separation, meditation, dependency, mortification, discernment, and now faith. Eight colors of the light that John describes for us in this epistle. Let's pray and ask the Lord now to, to make these colors true of our life. We cannot do it apart from Him. He must do these things in our life. He is the active agent. We are the ones who call upon Him to, to do His work in us. We long for this to happen. Let's pray that He would make it so. Our Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for the time that You have given us here. By Your gracious hand, all of us have been placed here for this weekend. You've had Your purpose in it. And we pray that that purpose would be to, to understand these things more truly, to value and appreciate these things more deeply and, and to live them out more practically. Father, give us that. Apart from You, we can do nothing good. But by Your strength, anything is possible. The mortification of the worst sin deeply rooted doesn't stand a chance. The impartation of an affection that has never before been experienced is possible with You. And so we pray for those things. I pray for these men that their lives would leave transformed and committed to a greater, deeper life in Christ. And that You would use them to influence other men in the church and beyond. And use this church as a great lighthouse here in the Bellingham area, for your glory's sake. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.